Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. So today I want to talk a little bit about market disruptions, discontinuous events, financial crises, and how I think one should think about them. Multiple years ago, there was a popular book, the title of which was Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Now, for me, I didn't read the book, but that statement isn't true. You know, I learned to read in first grade, and I think that was important. I learned the uh, rules of logic and the fundamentals of mathematical proof in eighth grade, and I think that was important. When I was in ninth grade, I visited Stanford and sat in on a Finance 101 class uh, in the business school, and there the professor repeatedly said, you can't change the value of an enterprise by changing the color of the stock certificates. And I found that to be an extremely useful concept. Uh, in my uh, second year of college, I took a financial accounting, financial analysis class. And there, I remember uh, the professor saying on more than one occasion, liquidity, solvency, profitability in that order, and those being separate but not unrelated concepts. And for the purpose of today's commentary and today's thoughts, I think that's the important idea. When one is talking about disruption, talking about financial exigencies, you know, on either the firm level or the broader economy level, to me, the first sort of step in the analysis is to ascertain whether one is dealing primarily with a question of liquidity, the ability of firms or the economy to meet their immediate current obligations, solvency, the assets of a company or an economy exceeding their liabilities, or profitability, their ability to generate a profit. Now, quite obviously, we can move from one to the other and in both directions. If you are unprofitable for uh, long enough, ultimately you're very likely not to be able to meet your current obligations or to take on debt or other liabilities and have your liabilities exceed your assets. Similarly, if one has more debts than the value of one's assets, at some point, when some of those liabilities become due, the firm will face a liquidity crisis. And, and in the other direction, in solving a liquidity crisis, the cost can be so high, debt could be incurred at such a price that it eliminates profitability or ultimately renders the firm insolvent. When we wrote the book Panic and talked about the financial crisis of 2008, a principal contention was that governments, government officials, in their response and thinking, saw the crisis as other crises had been primarily one of liquidity, that the Fed could interject liquidity quickly, the crisis would pass, as had been the case in the past 
broad injections of liquidity in 98 and 87 rapidly dissipated the long-term capital crisis and the shock of the 87 crash without any economic effects. And I believed, well, there were immediate liquidity issues, and that was you know, certainly a trigger of the crisis, Lehman not being able to roll over their debt and fund themselves on a daily basis. And Bear Stearns before that, and that you know, obviously was of tremendous import, but more fundamentally, there were real questions about the solvency of uh, individual firms, and then more broadly about the financial system in general. Now, one of the facts of life of any economy, and particularly a modern economy, is the knee bone is connected to the shin bone, which is connected to the ankle. Everything touches everything else, and to a certain degree, contagion or at least feedback, spillover effects are always present. But what's different and important is the nature of those effects, the depth and breadth of those effects, and uh, the speed at which they will come to pass versus the speed at which adjustments slash remediation can be made. One way to understand this and illustrate this is certainly in the very short term, liquidity is a zero-sum game. For one individual, one segment, one sector to increase its liquidity per force in the short term, somebody else is decreasing their liquidity. So on the firm level, if one extends their payables, that increases the liquidity of the firm doing it, but it decreases the liquidity of their vendors. You know, ditto similarly accounts receivable and so forth. If one draws on a line of credit, hypothetically increases the liquidity of the firm, decreases the liquidity of the uh, financial institution that that provided the line. So there's always connection. If we begin with the crash of 87, which in early 87, I predicted a crash in in the near future, though didn't put a date on it. Post the 87 crash, I expected profound economic effects. And, you know, so I was right in the prediction, but wrong in the effects. 87 was interesting in that it was to a very large degree a strange sort of liquidity crisis, a caused by, or at least greatly exacerbated by portfolio insurance, which is, was um, an algorithmic, positively feedback looped liquidity preference function for uh, institutional investors that had adopted it. So a random fluctuation in stock prices could cause Uh, institutions to demand more liquidity, i.e. to prefer selling stocks and raising cash. And this cycled. Ultimately, with injections of liquidity, a kind of discrediting of the uh, algorithm, we saw sort of a tempest in a teapot. In 87, the overwhelming 
majority of the stock sales on Monday of 87 were by people for whom there was no question of solvency. They were fully paid for shares owned by unlevered institutions with no immediate cash needs. So zero question of solvency. And in fact, the crisis was quickly resolved in short order and there was no contagion. The asset sales of the solvent did not push others into a zone of insolvency and there were no sort of reverberating effects. When one comes to uh, 98 and the crisis around long-term capital, unlike the institutions of 87 who were the principal sellers of stocks on Black Monday, long-term capital was extraordinarily levered and their counterparties, the people who had provided them leverage, were also quite levered and they were levered to the same assets in large degree that long-term capital was. And at least in kind of the initial stages, one had to entertain the possibility that both long-term capital and their creditors could potentially be insolvent, particularly if their assets were sold and liquidated in a sloppy quick fashion, you know, that these institutions might be insolvent, as they say, you know, with their assets under the hammer, though solvent at fair market values. The Fed engineered an agreement with all of long-term capital's creditors, with the exception of Bear Stearns. It was voluntary, you know, basically to liquidate long-term capital in an orderly timely way. And in fact, with that dissolution and liquidation, long-term capital was in fact solvent and none of their creditors took losses. And of course, therefore, none of their creditors had any question of solvency. Different story in 08. And uh, in particular, Unlike the orderly liquidation of long-term capital, Lehman was liquidated in a sloppy way and everybody had to be concerned about the solvency of both Lehman and their creditors. And I think, in point of fact, not all Lehman creditors recovered a hundred cents on the dollar. The crisis essentially blew up the financial system and the housing market, which was already in fairly rapid decline after the expansion of the financial system had created a housing bubble. Now, I think, and it's a counterfactual and probably not possible in any practical sense at all, but had essentially TARP been imposed overnight between September 15th and September 16th, which is to say equity injected into all the institutions that were forced to take equity later on, coupled with a massive Fed injection of money and a massive, you know, sort of repo line for all of the financial system. Housing would have continued 
to adjust and deflate with regulatory pressure and scrutiny, the financial system could have deflated and delevered. An adjustment could have been made without a great recession. So the financial crisis was unique or at least different from previous things in that one, you had inflated sectors, you had a real crisis of solvency, which meant that just injections of liquidity could not solve the underlying issues. And you had the rapid, sloppy liquidation of assets, in part because of the sort of terms of financing within the financial markets. If we talk about the COVID recession in 2020, the government response both met liquidity needs and prevented mass kind of force liquidations with things like the foreclosure moratorium, injections of equity into small business via the PPP program, and what was a crisis of profitability, given the sudden loss of demand and physical impossibility of doing business, the responses did mean that a uh, crisis of profitability did not become a crisis of either liquidity or solvency. And a window of time was created to allow for adjustments without the exacerbation of forced sales and therefore equilibrating adjustment time and spread time. When we look at the most recent hiccup, which is to say Evergrande, it has some, though not all, of the characteristics of Lehman and the financial crisis of 08. The similarities are there is a real question of Evergrande's solvency and more broadly the solvency of all of the major property developers in China. There is the tremendous opacity of the Chinese financial system and the inability to determine who owes whom what and where chain reactions might be. Where I see a fundamental difference is that it's extremely unlikely for there to be wholesale liquidations of assets and a disorderly triggering of people's inability to pay that it's extremely likely the Chinese government will, in one form or another, both inject liquidity, solve the liquidity issue, and in fact support the solvency of the system should that be necessary. Which brings us to the last level in which the government you know, probably can't and won't solve. It's very, very possible that Evergrande and the um, property development system generally in China is unprofitable and maybe has to be that, in fact, too much, too fast, too large, 
to be profitable and therefore an adjustment process has to occur property development in china has to shrink this you know almost certainly slows down growth in china conceivably china could enter another recession this would dampen of course growth prospects around the world but is extraordinarily unlikely to trigger a snowballing kind of chain reaction it's just so should growth in the US slow by 50 basis points 100 basis points even 200 basis points as a result of a significant slowdown in China and I'm not predicting that I'm not asserting that those are the limits of the numbers or those are the likely numbers or that's the nature and totality of the connection of the US economy to China but in that scenario while the profitability of certain US firms will be affected it won't move down the chain to either solvency or liquidity the banking system in the US is both extremely liquid and at kind of both record levels of liquidity and solvency so the notion that evergrand is a lehman moment or even the asian contagion of 97 which supposedly led to long term capital in 98 i think that's just wrong so financial issues in china may slow growth in the us certainly at least in the short run and versus what it otherwise might have been won't cause a recession won't trigger demand any sort of cascade one of the things i do believe as also you know sort of this week the fed further signaled that tapering which is to say a diminution of their securities purchases over a 6 to 8 month period is starting soon i think the withdrawal of this continued injection of liquidity even though it's extremely well telegraphed and expected will have a deflating effect on asset prices but again i think you know and particularly both debt and equity prices i believe can decline in reaction to less excess liquidity the prospects of snowballing and contagion beans faster than the adjustment process is small as always i welcome questions and comments and i hope i was coherent thank you all thank you for listening to ask andy if you would like to submit a question please email askandypodcast@gmail.com Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.